and thank you for joining us on episode 18 of the Research in Focus podcast series. At Simon Fraser University, we have a graduate program in educational technology and learning design, two fields of research that inform what students learn in the program are learning science and data science. In this episode, Dr. John Nesbitt and Dr. Tenzin Dalek discuss being productive and publishing scholarly papers in the learning and data sciences. We have gathered the questions from educational technology and learning design graduate students and look forward to this conversation. Hi, John and Tenson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's start with telling the audience about your academic background. Hi, Quincy. Thanks for uh, setting this up. Yeah, sure. Um, my research interests focus on educational psychology and learning sciences. And right now I'm working on two research projects mainly. Uh, one is a collaboration with Dr. Phil Winnie, and it's about real-time tutoring and simulation-assisted inquiry learning. And what we're doing is uh, researching tutoring strategies and principles for developing students' discovery skills when they're working with simulations of uh, scientific phenomena. Now, the other research project is about argument visualization, and we developed a, a visualization tool called DMAP, and it's being used in courses, actually quite a few courses right across San Fraser University right now. And this is supporting undergraduate students' composition of arguments. Wow, what great research projects that you are working on. I've read a few publications coming from these two research studies. Hi, Tenzin. Would you mind introducing yourself to the audience, please? Thanks, Quincy. Um, my name is Tenzin Dalek. I am an assistant professor and a Canada Research Chair, Tier 2, uh, in Analytics for Learning Design at SFU. Prior to joining SFU, I was a provost postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. Currently, my research and uh, course development interests are in uh, the areas of data science and learning analytics. And my research is funded by uh, CRC and CFI. Thank you, Tenson. This is very exciting. Today, we have several themes to discuss. My first question is, how to find a proper journal to support early career researchers? Uh, the first thing, I mean, you have to do your due diligence in, in researching the journal. Uh, I mean, and there are so many tools that you can use nowadays to select uh, the journal. So I, I can name a few. For example, there's the thinkcheck.submit.org uh, tool. It's basically a checklist where you can uh, evaluate the, the credentials of a publisher and, and, and a journal. I think related to this, I would say, try and avoid predatory uh, publishers and journals. So uh, if, if you are unsure about a particular publisher or, or even a, a journal, you should consult uh, your supervisor, maybe even your colleagues. And I'm also thinking one, another avenue that you can look at to publish is, is uh, to look at recent issues in journals that you're interested in and try and see, engage the kinds of um, topics or maybe even studies that are published. And then if you decide to submit uh, one approach that you can use to improve your chance is, is to model your manuscript organization uh, on, on a paper that is already published in that journal. 
I think that's great advice. Uh, and I would echo that, especially the bit about predatory journals. Uh, you really should watch out for uh, where you publish and, and do your research on that um, because it's very easy to wind up with your paper basically owned by an entity that uh, is just interested in um, making money, just a profit machine. And I'm not talking about the big public publishing houses now either. One of these next questions that does relate to it, and it's from a PhD student, Arita Liu. She's saying, what advice do you have about choosing a good open access journal? So one of the kind, you know, there are different kinds of journals and um, there are mo the most traditional journals keep their articles behind a paywall and that makes them harder to access. Uh, people that don't have, that aren't uh, students or faculty members at a university may find it difficult to access your work. So it's better, generally speaking, if you can publish in a place that's open access and you can, it can be discovered by just a simple uh, Google search. However, um, finding a good open access journal, as Arita's question suggests, is not necessarily an easy matter. And most of the journals out there are not open access. Uh, so some of them uh, are like basically traditional closed access journals, but they will allow for you, if you pay extra money, to take away the authentication required to access that article. So they're kind of playing both sides. They're doing both an open access and a closed access uh, in the same journal even. So I'm not sure if that's a really good idea, and, uh, but it is great. If you can find a decent open access journal and it, it uh, is suitable for your manuscript, I think that could be um, a really good option. Finding a good one though is hard. And honestly, I don't have a, a good strategy for how to do that. Maybe Tenzin has a comment on it. Sure, I mean, I mean there are several um, pretty good uh, journals in the field of uh, edtech that are now open access. And just to name a few, there's the Journal of uh, Educational Technology and Society. Uh, there's the Australasian Journal of EdTech and uh, the International Journal of EdTech in Higher Education. Uh, and just to add, I mean, the quality of open access journals can vary. So uh, I don't want to brush off uh, or discourage people from publishing in open access journals. And, and, and you can always uh, do some quick checks to gauge the, the, the quality of an open access journal. Uh, for example, you can, uh, there's something called the Jeffrey Beals list of uh, journals. So you can scan Jeffrey Beals list to see uh, questionable open access uh, publishers uh, and, and their journals. Uh, well, then there's the, another question from Catherine Deng, another PhD student in the program. And she's just asking about, well, what are some of the journals that, uh, that focus on educational technology research? And uh, it's actually not that hard to identify these. I noticed that Google Scholar has a categorization for these things and you can find them. Um, there's also um, the uh, social science uh, citation indices, that kind of thing. Um, but I can just give a very quick list in addition to the ones that Tenzin already mentioned that were open source. There's Computers in Education. I think it's one of the highest impact journals in, in the field. Um, there's uh, Interactive Learning Environments. There's journal, journal of Learning Analytics. And there's many, many more. We're in a sense in the field of educational technology and learning design. 
we have the benefit of a very large range of journals that we can apply to. And also you don't necessarily need to, even if you're doing ed text focused research, it's quite likely that you could get published in a different uh, kind of journal like a science education journal if the uh, subject of your research is related to science education. Yeah, and there are other journals that, that are uh, also related. For example, there's computers and human behavior, but they do accept a lot of ed tech papers. That's right. And also it's a high quality journal. Mm -hmm. Learning and Cognition is another uh, one that's in that similar kind of vein. It's a little bit more on the cognitive science side, but a lot of uh, educational technology learning design papers could get published there. Yeah. And another one you could add is the Journal of Ed Psych. You, you'll find quite a few papers uh, on ed tech yep. there as well. Flagship Journal in Educational Psychology. There's also the Journal of the Learning Sciences, um, right. which is you know another major journal in our field. So there's lots to choose from. Uh, and there's a related question from uh, Claire, who asks, um, how are the journals different from each other? So John, how would you go about? Yeah, um, well, we've already covered some of the differences. There's open access versus mm -hmm. um, non-open access journals. Um, I think one of the most important things that we're going to come up with, I'm just scanning our themes here now, and I'm noticing that it's not one of our themes, so we, we better introduce it at this point, is the idea of quality of a journal. Because when people think about which journal am I going to publish in, often what they're thinking of is they want to publish perhaps in a higher impact journal, maybe a top tier journal or a second tier journal, something like that. And this is a a vital consideration when you're thinking about publication. You have to honestly assess your research and you have to determine, well, is this sufficient quality to get published in some of these uh, higher impact or top tier journals in the field? And to do that, again, do something like what Tenzin already suggested, which is go to those journals and have a look at some of the papers and look at their publication criteria. For example, some uh, journals, like I'm thinking of the Journal of Ed Psych, if you want to get published there, it's really a good idea to have a couple of studies. You know, like if you're if you're working on kind of an experimental paradigm, lots of them aren't, but let's say you are doing an experiment, it's probably better to actually publish two experiments in one article in the Journal of Ed Educational Psychology. Um, so understanding the quality of your paper and matching that to the standing of the journal is probably a, is a, it's a good strategy because otherwise you can be wasting a, a lot of your time. Now, one thing I would say is that I've, I've heard from some people that they think, well, my research really isn't good enough to get into a top tier journal. So I'm just gonna forget about it and move on to some other research. I would say that is a very bad idea because these days um, the quality of the journal, I think means less and less. It's different from the old days when the way to find uh, a paper was to go to the library and flip through some of the, um, the journals that have been published and you'd find them, you'd find the article through the journal. But nowadays we find our articles through database searches, you know, uh, searching uh, something like Eric or Education Source or Web of Science. And when we're doing that, uh, the, the journal itself is only an attribute of the paper. It's no longer the, the platform that you use to access the paper. So, you know, 
I've published in uh, journals that would not be considered, and I'm proud to, proud to admit it, would not be considered very high impact journals. I'm thinking of something like uh, the Canadian Journal of Learning and Technology. It is open access. It is not in print form. It has a decent peer review process, but is and it is indexed in um, some of the major indices. But it would be not considered a like a top tier journal by any means. However, some of the papers I've published there have actually gotten more citations than some of the papers I've published in some of the higher ranking journals. So I wouldn't worry too much about this issue of, you know, is it a top ranked journal or not? Instead, just find an appropriate journal that's going to give you a good peer review, because getting a decent peer review is absolutely essential. And that's one of the ways you can tell if you're dealing with a poor journal, uh, like a predatory journal, is you won't get a proper peer review and then go ahead and publish it. And if it's an interesting paper that attracts a lot of attention, it'll get lots of citations no matter which journal it's published in. Yeah, and, and just to add on, on how to differentiate between journals, I think one consideration could be the scope of the journal. So for example, some journals have a very narrow scope, uh, whilst others have a very broad scope. So I'm, I'm thinking of a, an example. So for uh, there's a journal called the Online Learning Journal, which has a very narrow focus on uh, online environments and learning, uh, whilst uh, the Journal of EdTech Research and Development has two specific sections, I think uh, one on research and one on development. So that could be a consideration as well. Yeah. Just to go back to the, this uh, question of uh, open access uh, journals, I think one thing you have to keep in mind is that there are some open access journals that have an article processing charge. So you have to be um, wary of those charges as well. I see. Now, how about we move to the following theme? knowing the types of publications and their perceived value. So the question related to this is, what type of publications are available? There are different types of uh, publications. I mean, the most common one is, is a research article, or, or some, some people refer to as the original article or original research. Then you have uh, review articles or survey papers, uh, meta-analyses, uh, case studies, uh, methodological papers, uh, I think even conceptual papers accepted. Uh, and now I'm noticing a lot more journals are receptive to data articles. So articles uh, which basically describe and provide research data. I haven't seen this in EdTech journals, but there, uh, there are other fields that accept replication papers. And some journals will also accept uh, book reviews. What do you think, John? Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a good list. I would just add this idea of the replication paper is is really an important concept. I mean, there are still some editors out there who don't want to publish replication papers in their journal. And fundamentally, it's hard for me to understand why, because uh, they are important considering that some people say we have a replication crisis in our field and related fields. And so replication is not old news, it's new news in my in my book. And it's very important because it strengthens the field in general. I'll just uh, add something, and then I haven't seen this in EdTech journals, uh, but in other fields, you are now starting to see what uh, are called registered reports. Uh, basically, registered reports follow a two-stage process. 
uh, in stage one, before authors collect their data, their study protocols are reviewed. Uh, next, after receiving provisional acceptance, the full study is then reviewed. So I think this is a helpful process to deal with some of the bias that exists in uh, uh, publishing. For example, you can publish uh, non-significant findings. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it's a really important format because it gets us away from deciding that because there were non-significant findings in the study that it shouldn't be published. Uh, but really, whether a study should be published or not depends upon whether the research questions and the methodology are interesting and suitable and accurate. And if they are, then the research results are what they are and they, they're important whether, they, uh, whether the answer is yes or no, really, because you're asking an important question. So I think that's an important uh, strategy. Now, regarding the publishing strategy, what is the difference between submitting a book chapter, a journal, and the conference proceedings? Okay, well, I would take this question as being, what is the difference in process, you know, when you're submitting these different kinds of publications? Um, and I suppose also there's like a difference in perceived value. Um, just like the publication in a you know, higher tier or lower tier journal, sometimes depending upon the settings, people will place a higher or a lower value on different types of publications, like say chapters, journals, and proceedings. And if that is going on, it doesn't necessarily uh, happening, but generally speaking, a journal article would be valued more highly than a proceedings paper and a proceedings paper might be valued more highly than a book chapter. And uh, part of the reasons for those lie in the rigor of the peer review that are typically uh, used in a journal article proceedings and a, and a book chapter. And of course, the problem is you can't really generalize across, in, in, across these categories. But um, so one thing is that with a book chapter, it's very often the case that there is a call that is made, could appear in a journal, it could appear at a conference, and, or it could be an invitation that's directly made to a researcher to submit a chapter. But the idea is if there's a call for chapters and uh, then there's a communication with the editors and a submission of a chapter. Then there's the, the kind of review that the chapter gets, and sometimes it will get a fairly, well, let's just call it a lighter review. For example, what might happen is that the editor will ask the other book chapter authors to review sort of each other's chapter manuscripts, which is not as rigorous as they as if they put out the chapters for independent review, which also sometimes happens. Um, proceedings, uh, journals and proceedings, of course, all have peer review, sometimes they're blind, sometimes they're not blind, uh, which means that uh, a blind review means that the reviewers don't know the identity of the, of the authors and vice versa. Proceedings, of course, are uh, a presentation that you give at a conference that has an associated paper. And they are typically, it's very much more common in um, some of the related sciences to educational technology and learning design, computing science, um, engineering, education, for example, they will often have very short proceedings papers, which could be five pages long. Five pages is kind of standard. 
And uh, so obviously if you have a long article that you wanna publish, then that's not suitable. And so you'd go for a journal or a book chapter. Yeah, I should, I should mention that uh, the differences between conference proceedings and journals can also be uh, disciplines uh, specific. So you can have different norms. So for example, in computer science, uh, conference proceedings favor uh, quite well against uh, journals. Uh, in fact, um, some conference proceedings are actually final outlets for papers in computer science. So if you're yeah. working in, in, in areas that are related to computer science, I mean, you, you could end up publishing simply in a conference proceeding. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I know computer scientists that almost all of their publications are in proceedings. Yeah, because there are so many new discoveries in computer science. So, so, so timelines matter. And so in, computers, in, in, in uh, conference proceedings, sometimes get published even before the con actual conference date. Yeah. And with researchers in education, though, you could get almost the opposite where you know, there are some people who have never published any conference proceedings because when they go to conferences, they just give uh, presentations without a paper. Yeah. Uh, also, I, I'd like to highlight one another difference between journals, book chapters, and proceedings is, is that journals and conferences do have rankings. Uh, you won't find rankings for book uh, for books. Yeah. So, oh, and an, another big difference, of course, is that uh, book chapters aren't indexed typically. Right. Now, sometimes they are uh, available; they're open. But most commonly, book chapters are, you know, behind a paywall of some kind, and also they're not indexed, which means that they tend to be cited much less than journals and proceedings, which is a bad thing. Yeah, and, and I'll just share my experience with book chapters. I think I think the review process uh, for a book chapter can be quite different from a journal. So while it's common to go through multiple rounds of revisions before acceptance in a journal, uh, book chapters are usually subject to maybe one or two rounds. Yeah, I agree with that. It's been my experience. And also in terms of acceptance rates, you'll notice book chapters usually have a higher acceptance rate. Thank you both. Um, what you have just shared can benefit many graduate students. Mari Fukuda shared that, unlike simple quantitative studies, such as using test scores in data science research, the types and amount of data and the freedom of analysis can be more wide-ranging. Because of that, she feels it takes time to publish papers when trying to expand the analysis. On the other hand, it might be important to publish more papers. Um, what do you think is the best balance between taking the time to deepen a simple paper and increasing the number of publications? So the question is, what is your suggestion for early career researchers? Is it better to publish quality or quantity? Is it worth working on time-consuming studies? that have more impact or quicker studies? Yeah, sure, this is a really good question. And it's one that many researchers at all levels, I think, face. Um, and in a sense, I think the answer has to be both because especially if you're early career, um, I've seen cases where people can spend years working on one really high quality paper and they could be, if they're going for tenure or something like that, that could be not a very good strategy. So 
a better way to do this is if you have, if all of your time is being taken up in this, this one huge uh, deep piece of research would be to try to spin off some um, initial uh, studies out of that. So for example, if you're doing longitudinal research, longitudinal research typically takes, could take years to gather the data and that's not even analyzing the data. So instead of waiting for five years before you publish your, your longitudinal paper, instead you could publish a non-longitudinal uh, bit of research on some of the initial data that you collect as part of that project. So in other words, what you wanna do is keep a steady stream of publication going while also deepening and working on, um, burn, let's just say burnishing the quality of, of your work because you know, I think everybody's going to have a range of quality in their papers. Some papers are going to be, um, you know, potentially even landmark papers that are have a big impact on the area. But uh, most researchers also just have some regular old, let's just call them um, more mid-level papers that are still making a positive contribution to the area. Yeah, and just to add to that, um, so if you, let's say you're working on a big project, you, you might have done a pilot study before embarking on that big study. So don't, don't leave that uh, pilot study sitting. Uh, you can actually publish based on the results of pilot studies as well. So that could be one avenue. Uh, but I'm also thinking for graduate students, sometimes uh, your only options are to publish based on data availability. So if that's the case, you could maybe seek out other forms of publications, maybe do a review article where you're not dependent on the availability of data. Yeah, another thing about this is that, well, actually Quincy knows about this because she's part of this project. Uh, we had a fairly uh, long-term research project going in the sim simulation-based learning field. And it was taking a long time just to design the experiment, just to get the materials uh, set up and to figure out what the treatment should be. And in the course of doing that, we ran quite a few pilot subjects. And then fortunately, uh, we were able to get about three publications just out of the pilot data for this. So um, I just thought that rarely have I ever been able to be that efficient in the use of data. Somehow that worked. I think it's due to the great graduate students who each got a, a, were a senior authored paper on those three. So that was nice. Uh, but then, John, how do you deal with the criticism of data slicing? Uh, yeah. So this is like, um, I mean, I, I know researchers who, who, who proudly slice, <laughs> do salami slicing, salami slicing of their research as a way of increasing their productivity. And uh, ultimately, what it comes down to is, can you produce a, a useful, valuable contribution to the field mm -hmm. with a particular data set? And if you can, then I'm not too worried about what, what proportion it might form of a larger project. I think it's perfectly legit to publish a series of studies out of one larger project and people do it all the time. Um, and really it comes down to, is it publishable? Is, it, is the quality there? And if you think the quality is there, then I wouldn't worry about salami slicing. And also, I think this might be relevant to uh, PhD students. Uh, more and more um, doctoral um, PhD theses are based on the model of manuscripts. So you put together a bunch of manuscripts and that becomes your, your uh, thesis. 
So I've, I've seen cases where people have already published papers and then they just put them together for their dissertation. Yeah, some of my PhD students have done that. It's a very effective strategy. It's more common in Europe and other areas. Aha, I will take this suggestion for my PhD thesis. How about we go to the following theme, which is about publishing on popular topics versus more on fundamental and niche topics. One student asked, what are the current hot topics in educational technology literature? In what direction is the landscape of literature moving? Do you have any suggestions for us? I mean, before listing the hot topics, uh, I think it's important to be aware of the hot topics, but then I have a question like, do you chase these hot topics? And not to discount the importance of uh, being aware of hot topics, uh, I'd pose a question, and I think John might have an answer to this. Like, do you chase hot topics? Um, well, I have an opinion on it, uh, and it's kind of like yes and no. And you have to determine whether um, what youth are interested in. First of all, I wouldn't just pursue something because it happens to be super popular at the moment. But I can I have a little bit of a story about that. I, I think when I was an early career researcher myself. I tended to avoid areas that I thought were already kind of oversubscribed for a number of reasons. Maybe I lacked the confidence to sort of publish in an area where there were lots of major figures in the area already publishing, or maybe I thought that I could, by pursuing something that is more niche, that maybe it could become a hot topic. But I would say gradually over my career, I've become more willing to engage in some of the major debates uh, in the field. And I, I think it's not a bad strategy. So if you think that you have a, something to say about the major issues of the day, in other words, the hot topics, and you have research you can contribute to that question, then by all means, go ahead and pursue that topic. So I, I would th say that you know, hot topics by themselves, hot topics and scare quotes, aren't necessarily a bad thing to be researching. Uh, I think I'm the same boat. Uh, the, I think if you have the, the capacity and the resources to work on a hot topic, I mean, go ahead. Uh, but you also have to be wary of the drawback. I mean, if the research that you do on the hot topic uh, does not quite map well onto your program of research, then you can sometimes drift away from your core uh, program of research. Yeah. And when it comes to this, I think the question is sort of more about what are the hot topics right now? Right. And my response would be more like, well, why don't we first come up with like a hot topic generating algorithm? <laughs> and then <laughs> because the hot topics will be gone, you know, in four years, but you will still have the algorithm. So what I would say is um, for the field of educational technology and learning design and learning sciences, that kind of thing, I would say that you have a couple of interesting strategies. One of them is ask, well, what are the hot topics in education? And then you could then see, see, well, how can you digitize that or digitalize it as I've heard the verb that some people have used. In other words, how can I, what is the intersection of that with the field of, uh, of technology, digital technology? And so I'm thinking of things like topics like social emotional learning, uh, topics like uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are all now very important in education, educational psychology, let's say. 
And if a person in our, more in our field in the learning sciences, educational technology, learning design wants to contribute, they can find some um, technological angle on those issues. And so they could be almost innovating on the hot topic, if you like. Uh, I think that works. And then you could do it the other way too. You could ask yourself, well, what are the hot topics in, in computing right now and in software? I mean, it might be some area of let's say machine learning. So then you could ask, well, what, how can I put an educational lens on those um, hot topics in computing? So that's another way of generating, you know, discovering a hot topic. So I would, that's, this is what I would recommend to students, come, come up with these strategies for being creative about the research fields that you want to work in. Yeah, and just to add on to some other strategies that you can use to spot uh, popular topics, I mean, you could easily read uh, some editorials from top journals, um, also find some of the top cited papers in recent years. And also you can also look at ed tech startups and see uh, the kinds of uh, research or development work that they're doing. And one another strategy that I've used in recent times is to keep an eye out for new journals. So for example, Elsevier, I think just started two new journals related to EdTech. So you have the Computers and Education in Artificial Intelligence and uh, Computers and Education X Reality. So we're dealing with uh, things like virtual reality, augmented reality. Thank you, John and Tencent for the excellent advice. It definitely benefits most of us to think creatively and strategically about finding the intersection of our own research interests and important topics in educational psychology so that our research is not just sitting in the lab, but also be able to contribute to the field. I just forgot, uh, if you're attending conferences, you usually find that uh, keynote speakers are usually talk about popular topics. This is a great idea. I never thought about that. Most of us know that the publication process is complicated. How long does the publication process take on average? And how does the publication process work? Um, I don't want to give a non-answer, but uh, there is no fixed timeline. I mean, it's, it's very journal specific. But what you can do is look at the journals, because some journals will provide uh, an indication of their average uh, turnaround time. So you might find things like um, average days to first decision or, or the average number of days from uh, submission to acceptance. So things like that you can look out for. Yeah, I'm just looking now at the sort of second part of this question is how does the publication process work? Uh, and of course, there are these stages um, where you can sometimes get right at the initial stage when you submit your manuscript, you can sometimes get what's called a desk reject. And what that means is the the editor looks at it and says, well, this is not suitable for the journal. And, um, you know, that I've gotten those before and I actually like them. They are not to be, um, you know, dismissed because that editor has just done you a big favor, saved you from going through a tortuous review process at their journal. So, you know, immediately, okay, I can just take it to another journal. They've also usually give you a reason for the desk reject. And it might be something like, well, it looks like a great paper, but it's not really on target with our journal, not suitable for our journal. And they might have some very specific reasons and they might give you some other kinds of helpful feedback very quickly, which is great to have because the publication process can take a long time. And uh, that's you know one of the most tedious things about it. Oh, I'm just looking down the list of things in the process. There's plagiarism checking. 
that happens early on, that's often, often done by the editor. That could be the reason for a desk reject, by the way. And it's not necessarily dishonest plagiarism. It could be something like, you have published your PhD thesis in Summit in the library, you know, the, the database at SFU, Simon Fraser University, and then you go to write a paper about your research and the editor says, you know what, I'm picking up plagiarism, red flags, and it's because that in effect, your PhD thesis has already been published. So that can present a problem. And often the editors will say, I'm sorry, but you're just gonna to have to uh, deal with that and uh, rewrite sections of this research so that it can pass our plagiarism checker. John, are you answering the question for dealing with rejections? No? Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's also part of this, isn't it? So um, you can also get, of course, get rejected by the review process. And of course, especially early career researchers can find this incredibly disheartening. I think that what people need to know is that good researchers get rejected often enough. And uh, it's, it doesn't necessarily reflect on you as a researcher or the quality of your research. It might even ref say more about the, the people who are reviewing the paper. My advice when you experience rejection is to take an honest look at the paper, take the advice that the reviewers are giving you to try to improve it if uh, it's sensible advice, and then turn around and resubmit to a different journal. And you might have to do that multiple. I have been in a process where I have, with one of my graduate students, uh, we, this a few years back, we picked a very high impact top tier journal, was rejected, turned it around, submitted it to a, a kind of like the next level down, and it was also rejected. <laughs> and then, then the next level down, I think it was finally after the third submission, we got it accepted. And it was, it was like a decent sort of journal we got it published in. And I was quite happy with the result, but it just took ages. So yeah, and I'll echo what John just mentioned. I think I can't stress enough, but setbacks are normal and, and a natural part of the publishing process. Uh, I mean, I'm early in this business, but you quickly realize that someone always finds something to critique and some reviewers can, can be less constructive uh, than they should be. So, so the, I think the, the key is that you do not personalize rejection or criticism of your academic work. Yeah, that's right. I'll just uh, add something, and then I haven't seen this in EdTech Journal. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you could change your perspective on rejections. I mean, think of, I mean, look at it as learning moments, and you know, just approach rejections with uh, curiosity, maybe find some positives. Yeah, I agree. Many of us go through periods when we have to work intensely for long hours and other commitments in our lives. Therefore, we get very little time for high-quality papers. Also, connecting literature, research findings, and innovative ideas in academic writing are time-consuming. Our last question is, how do you maintain your productivity in publications? I mean, for me, productivity has always been a challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think a simple strategy I use is, is to set reasonable and achievable goals and, and plan what uh, I, I need to do. And so you can plan at different levels. You can have short-term plans, long-term plans. And also, I think since we're faculty, we have uh, multiple claims on our time. So it's more important uh, to basically plan the work that we need to do and when. 
So what I basically do is block out time for my priorities. That's all good advice. Uh, it's If you are a researcher, you have to prioritize research. That is the first principle. So that means you have to put it ahead of some of the other claims on your time as, as Tenzin puts it. And if you don't do that, it'll just keep getting pushed to the bottom of the list and you won't make progress. Um, the other thing that is to adopt different strategies for being productive. I mean, you wanna keep it fun, right? That's the whole point. And so there are strategies that can keep it fun and can also uh, boost productivity. So I would say one of those is collaboration. Um, I just find uh, working with other people on research projects to be uh, enjoyable. And um, I get to work with really smart people and it's, it's terrific. And also that, you know, because you can be the major contributor to the paper or you can be a minor contributor, but you're still gonna get authorship. And so um, that's one way of keeping your productivity up. I would say another thing is to look for these different kinds of publications. This kind of reflects back on to something we were discussing earlier, but you know, if you've just been working on empirical papers, maybe it's a good time to do a literature review and maybe not a meta-analysis if you've done meta-analyses because they can be very time consuming, but pick something that's a little bit lighter, I would think, you know, like uh, something that's a little bit more practical and maybe shorter. And just a change of pace, change of, of mode of research, I think can uh, help to keep productivity up. I agree. I mean, John, I think uh, it's it's really important that you find co-authors that you enjoy working with. Uh, and, and at the same time, uh, to sustain long-term collaborations, you also need to be a good co-author. That's right. Yeah. And uh, just to add, uh, in terms of time, and, and I think we as faculty, our, our time is so unstructured. So sometimes we forget to set reasonable bounds um, on uh, where and how much we work. So I think it's 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 important to uh, take care of yourself and have a, a work-life balance as well. That's sustainable, or or else you're going to be overwhelmed. Yeah. So so basically, carve out some time for your personal interests. Yeah, that's very important. You know, um, just as a kind of a separate thing, I was reading um, a book about how to study, and uh, it's targeted at undergraduate students. And I, I was I was kind of amazed at wow this is really good advice you know like I wish I'd had this advice when I was an undergraduate student but one of the things that um, they advocate and it makes a lot of sense is to actually schedule your work time on specific projects so you know put that into your calendar schedule it in a calendar and you know, it might only be thirty minutes or forty minutes uh, but you get some work done on that particular project. And uh, it can be a very efficient way to, uh, to move ahead on these things. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's nice to have a, a tracking system. So I, I have a spreadsheet to track the status of, of my research papers. I also keep a tracking system for upcoming conferences, uh, deadlines for funding, deadlines for maybe submissions to uh, special issues. Wow, I think we just discovered the secret of your success, Tenzin. I don't know if it's in secret. <laughs> that, that in addition to your normal brilliance. If I could add another point, we don't talk about this enough, but I think writing is essential to research productivity. So I would encourage students to write 
regularly to develop rituals uh, to sustain effective writing. Yeah, there are, I've known some colleagues who have advice for this, and they would say things like, make sure you write at least one page a day. Yeah, and, and, and read often and read a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, John and Tenson, for sharing your publication experiences and providing excellent advice to young scholars. I enjoy this conversation and believe this episode not only helps educational technology and learning design graduate students, but also graduate students in the educational research field. Yeah, no, I, I just want to say thank you, Quincy, for setting this up. Good work. Thanks, Quincy. Dr. John Nesbitt is a professor of educational technology and learning design at Simon Fraser University. Dr. Tenson Dollett is an assistant professor and Canada research chair at Simon Fraser University. You have been listening to Research in Focus podcast. This episode is made by Dr. John Nesbitt. Dr. Tenzin Dalek and me, Quincy Wang. Talk to you soon. <laughs>